Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. So my name is Jared Barron, and I am the chairman and CEO of The Metals Company. And we're all about opening up a new supply of battery metals in the form of these guys, polymetallic nodules. And these form in great abundance in one little patch of the ocean, now known as the Clarion Clipperton Zone. And they literally lie on the ocean floor like golf balls on a driving range. And they contain the base metals that we're going to need a lot more of as we head into electrifying our energy systems. So, yeah, that's what the metals company is up to. Good to see you again, Jared. Uh, it was deep green last time we spoke. So we've got a name change. You've gone to raise some money. You've listed on Nasdaq, yeah. um, and you're moving this this story forward. But let, before we kind of get into all those exciting things, just just remind you've kind of done a little bit around the thesis uh, there of what you're trying to do. Can you just maybe describe to people how you are going to go about? Uh, delivering into that thesis, then I'll pick up on some of the stuff you've actually been doing. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, your audience knows better than anyone that you know the the transition away from fossil fuels into the new economy of electric cars, renewable power, and plus the ongoing industrialization in the developing world and population growth is going to put uh, the need for more metals, and so. What we have to do as a society is say, you know, as and, and we all agree that we're heading towards a more circular economy, right? We, we, we believe that in the future, recycling will take care of more of our metal needs. But in the short term, what we have to do is identify where can we get the supply of metals uh, with the lowest environmental touch and societal t- touch as well. And, and of course, what's really developed since you and I first met, Matthew, is the geopolitics of, of battery metals as well, because you know everyone has woken up to the fact that China dominates the supply of battery metals. You know, 90% of every ton of cobalt ends up in China, and 60% of every ton of nickel ends up in China. And so if you want to go and build gigafactories, as everyone seems to be announcing they are planning to do, or the car companies are planning to replace their combustion engines with electric vehicle models, where are the metals going to come from? And so this resource, which is located a thousand miles off the west coast of the USA, offers an opportunity for markets like the USA to become mineral independent. And of course, we know that over the last decades, uh, markets like the USA have fought so hard to become energy independent, but all of a sudden now they have this heavy reliance, maybe not this time on the oil states, but on, on Asia. And so, you know, it, it's, it's helping us, obviously, because, you know, when you look around, let's say nickel, and as you, your listeners may remember, almost half of the revenue comes from nickel on this project. And, you know, the grades of all metals on land are continuing to decline. And so just staying flat is really hard. And so in the case of nickel, all the growth is going to come in the form of nickel laterite uh, mining. And that comes with an enormous environmental impact. And so I, I think that Western car companies are just not going to be able to use those 
metals in the medium term. And I think consumers are starting to be more demanding about knowing, you know, how are their products made? Where are the metals coming from? What has been the environmental impact of producing that battery or that, that EV? Okay, so if we, if we look at sort of um, nickel laterite, yeah, or, or NPI as well, um, it is... It hasn't got a good reputation. Um, obviously, Chinese, Indonesia, it's, it's, uh, they don't seem to mind, but I, maybe the OEMs will mind. Why is yours any better? You, you're going to go and disturb the seabed, surely? We are, but that's where you have to look at it from a life cycle analysis. And so, you know, I can understand people when they think, wow, I know the land-based mining uh, process is not all that environmentally friendly. So the thought of doing that in the ocean would be horrific. I mean, we would never be involved with that, but this is a very special resource. And first of all, where it's located, you know, it's located in the abyssal zone and and that's the most common area on the planet. And I, I often say to people, if we could turn back the clock and, you know, we looked at our planet and said, where would it make most sense to carry out extractive industries? You'd go to the part of the planet where there was the least life. You know, you, if you could go to the Atacama Desert and pick up these rocks and turn them into batteries and generate zero tailings and zero waste, then surely that would be a better option than going to our rainforest to destroy our carbon sinks, to destroy the biodiversity and the megafauna and dig up the move all the soil aside so you can get to the metal bearing ore and then process it, generate lots of tailings and you have to dump them somewhere um, because of where Indonesia is based, of course, uh, on the on the plates. You can't put them into tailings dams. And so often they get spilled into the oceans. And so, th- and that's what we have here. We're located, the abyssal zone is like the Atacama Desert. It's, it's just lying, it's covered by 4,000 meters of water. It doesn't mean there's no life there, and it doesn't mean there's no impact. But when you carry out an analysis from a full life cycle perspective, we can compress those impacts enormously. We can reduce CO2 emissions by more than 90%. We can reduce tailings to zero. We can reduce waste to zero. We don't have to move communities. So so from every aspect, it's just such a superior environmental choice and societal choice than what the land-based alternatives are. So what pushback are you getting um, around your, well, I, I, I guess in a minute you're going to have to tell us you know, how you're going to go about um, doing this, but what pushback are you getting? Because obviously when you raised uh, money earlier this year, there was a huge drop-off immediately um, in, in the price, share price. I mean, why do you think that was? Were you, were you getting some sort of negative press around it, or do you think it was people just cashing in and taking the opportunity to cash in? Or what, what was driving that? Well, we, as as you know, we merged with the SPAC, which we announced on March four, and we had raised a, a pipe, and so we'd raised a three hundred and thirty million dollar pipe. Actually, we we announced a two hundred million, but we upsized it because we actually had a a lot of demand in. But two of our pipe investors couldn't fund. They defaulted. It wasn't that they decided not to fund. They couldn't fund. And so, you know, we were obviously very disappointed about that. And so it meant that we ended up raising less money than we had anticipated. And then, well, public company life comes with the unexpected. You know, we kind of became a 
a fad on stock twits and uh, and you know meme stocks and all of a sudden you know we were kind of getting whipped around a little bit and um and there was a little bit of free float and of course some of those investors had been part of our company for some time some of them had paid you know a lot less for their shares and so selling them at $5 was still an exceptional return and so and of course during the period leading up to the listing you know we weren't able to comment we weren't able to make any comments about our business or some of the environmental noise that was created at the time but i don't think it was about environment i don't think it was that at all and and you know i'm very confident that you know with the money that we've raised it it affords us a lot of flexibility it, it's sufficient money to complete all of our offshore pilot mining it's sufficient money to complete all of our onshore pilot processing work it's sufficient money to complete our environmental impact studies and most importantly it's enough money for us to submit our application to move from exploration into exploitation phase and and something else happened during sort of our quiet period and that was you know when people look at this project they can get very comfortable with the resource certainty because we do have uh, a, a resource statement over 1.6 billion tons of these guys and you know we're compliant with the Canadian 43101 and the SK 1300 resource reporting standard and the area that we're going to develop first which we know as nori area d uh, we've moved the resource from inferred to indicated and some of it to measured uh, and You know, so everyone understands the resources there. I think they can also accept. How, how do you, how do, you do remind remind us about how you do that on a seabed as far down as mm. uh, as you are? Because it's obviously unusual. People may not yeah. understand yeah. it. Yeah. Well, most resources are three dimensional, right? Whereas our resource is two dimensional because it literally lies on the ocean floor. Just just imagine going out to your golf driving range and all those balls that are littered there. You know, you can see them, and so. what we do is we survey we take pictures of it and so we now have bathymetric survey data covering 180,000 square kilometers of seafloor so it's a whole lot easier than drilling thousands of holes which of course is what you have to do on land you're trying to determine which way the ore body runs whereas we don't have that challenge and so the thing that we have to decide is the abundance and so when we report our resource it's measured as kilograms of nodules per square meter and so the grade of our nodules is very consistent over a very large area and that's because of how they form they precipitate the metals that are in the seawater or in the sediment and obviously water is fluid and so the the distribution of that uh, that that feedstock is very uh, even and so the thing that we have to decide though is is the abundances and so we survey it and then we take box core samples at regular intervals now our resource report was signed off by amc and to get to measured we ended up having to take box core samples at 10 km intervals and that's unheard of because if that was on land you could be having to take them at 50 meters and so and that's because of the resource certainty because of the survey data which shows uh, an exact image of what is on the ocean floor and it's 
you know, they're not mixed with some good rocks and bad rocks. They're all the same consistency. And so identifying the resource is a whole lot easier than the alternative on land. Okay, interesting, interesting. It's, it's all visual, essentially. I love it. Okay, um, so let's talk about the technology for um, actually getting it, exploiting it, i.e. getting it to the surface of the sea and then onto land. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so it's a remote-operated harvester, a tracked vehicle that will move along the ocean floor collecting these rocks. Uh, we'll separate the sediment from the rocks and then put the rocks into a, an air riser, which will then pump them up to the production vessel above. And they then get offloaded to a transporter, a Panamax or something similar, and transported to land where we will then process them. So this, this basically effectively hoovering uh, process or pumping process, probably more accurately, is yes. it, you've got that today. It works for rocks or nodules, sorry, I should say, of a certain size and weight, presumably. Uh, and how long have you been testing that? Well, we are building our offshore system with our partner, All Seas. And so uh, we'll actually have the full system on the license area next year. And so we're not far away from that. But if I, but if I go back in time, almost 50 years ago, this industry almost started. And so there were there were names like BP and Shell and Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, Lockheed Martin, and they built the collector systems that enabled them to collect these same rocks from 4,000 meters below sea level. Now, of course, the reason why the industry didn't move into commercial production, because the trials were successful, and you can go online and find the videos of them launching the harvesters and, and so on, was that there was no regulatory environment to provide clear title because back 50 years ago, the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. And so UNCLOS, which stands for the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, only came into being in 1982. And the International Seabed Authority, who govern the high seas, who govern international waters, um, was only established in 1994. And so, I was saying before, one of the major changes that has happened is regulatory certainty. And, you know, when people look at this project and think, well, where is the risk? I, I believe you can, I believe it's there. I can see how you can collect it because it happened 50 years ago. And clearly, a lot of advancements have taken place since that time with offshore oil and gas and pipeline and cable lane. I believe you can process them and turn them into metal. And, um, uh, we're doing that ourselves through our pilot processing work. Here's a nice piece of alloy that comes out of our pilot program work. Um, but what about the, the, the right to do it? What about the certainty of title? And so on July 9, one of our sponsor states exercised their sovereign right and lodged this two-year trigger. And the two-year trigger provides certainty around the timeline. It means that within two years, the regulator must have finalized any outstanding uh, exploitation code that allows us to submit our application and for them to consider it and approve it. Okay, so, you, so I just want to stick with this, this area at the moment. Obviously, you, you're going to require your own version of, of that his, historic technology, so and yep. presumably a vessel to do it on. So have you got that yet? We are building the harvester now. And in fact, next week, we'll be taking a group of people to the fabrication center to see that um, 
In February last year, our partner Allseas, uh, with our support, acquired our first production vessel. And, you know, that's something that's helped us get moving because they acquired a Samsung 10,000 drill ship. It was a $700 million asset less than 10 years ago, but they were able to acquire it for low tens of millions of dollars. And it has everything we need. It has a, a moon pool, a riser, heaps of power and heaps of storage. And so next week, we'll also be visiting that first production vessel. It's, it's out of dry dock now. It's uh, getting ready for our, our pilot trials next year. And so we're, we're well underway. And that same vessel will be our first production vessel, which we anticipate will be 2024. Okay, so just want to say what pilot means. Okay, so have, have you done any form of preliminary work prior to the pilot testing uh, to, to, to try and understand what, you know, how you're going to go about it, you know, what you're going to need uh, in place? You know, does the technology actually work? We have um, in our research facilities, which, are, which in fact they're all seas research facilities in, in Delft in Holland, but... One of the other contractors, in fact, um, the, the Belgian contractor was out in the CCZ sampling, trialing their harvester earlier this year. And those trials were very successful. And so I imagine going forward, Matthew, these harvesters will be like specialized caterpillar tractors. You know, we, we of course, you know, one operators might have slight nuances compared to the next, but collecting these nodules with the lowest impact on the surroundings, I don't think is going to be the magical part of this process. So why do you say that? Because, well, engineers love solving engineering problems. And I think that, you know, already we're seeing these harvesters operating. Um, funny enough, it's mainly coming out of, out of Europe. But two and a half years ago, pre-COVID, uh, my team and I were in Changsha, with Chinamen Metals visiting their pilot processing facility. Now they'd been processing these same nodules for 20 years. I, we also visited their harvesting system as well, the robot that they're going to use in their trials on the seafloor. So there's a lot of action happening from not only us, but, but from other contractors who are building these systems. And so you know. Okay, so, so so let's just okay. Well, let, let's move on to land, and I want to come back around to talk about economics, which is um, you've you've shown us a, a, a polymetallic uh, sample there, nice and shiny. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So talk, talk us through the process because the, these these polymetallic nodes need to be you know you need to be able to extract the minerals efficiently, effectively, you know, and commercially. So how are you mm -hmm. doing it now? Uh, is it some kind of again a pilot? process that you've been through? Yeah. So there are, there are two options. You can either dissolve them in an acid solution or you can melt them. And we've chosen with the melting option. So we, we throw them into um, a kiln and an electric furnace uh, to produce two things, an alloy material, such as I hold in my hand here, uh, which contains the nickel, the copper, and the cobalt, and the manganese silicate which is a direct replacement, <clears throat> excuse me, for manganese ore. But it's a very attractive product because it contains very low levels of iron. And so for the manganese alloy producers or the steel producers, it's, it's a very desirable product because it's more efficient 
when they're putting it back into the furnace. Okay, so let's get on to the kind of how quickly you can understand the economics. Because obviously, mm. sucking or pumping uh, these nodules up from four kilometers down, there's, there's, you know, you've got to try and understand what the economics are there. You've got to mm-hmm. ship them back to shore in, in I, I guess, I don't know how many vessels you're envisaging eventually, to an electric art facility where you're going you're gonna to basically melt these things down. How quickly do you get a sense of the efficiency levels here? Because everything works at a certain price, but you know the price is where it is today. Mm-hmm. Where we, when will you know what you need that price to be to make money? Well, we are well advanced on that, um, and that's why you know we've been doing our pilot processing work for the onshore um, with a variety of companies, including FL Schmidt, including XBS, and so who, of course, are part of Glencore. And so those companies have a lot of expertise when it comes to these material handling. And so that's from that perspective, you know, the pilot work is intended to, I guess, answer some of those material handling questions. And, and so we have a very firm grip on what the capex and the operating costs look like in the onshore side. We're, we're, we're now in the hydrometallurgical pilot processing work. And so we'll have that completed um, in the coming sort of six months. Uh, the, the next step from here is we convert this into a matte material. And so the matte will obviously um, you know, be more concentrated when it comes to the metals and is very efficient for shipping. And, and we then refine that into the final products, whether that's nickel sulfate or into nickel powder. Uh, they're the sort of decision points that we'll decide in the next couple of years. Um, when it comes to the offshore side, uh, you know that, that industry is very well established because the operators who we got involved first, firstly Maersk and now Allseas, operate in this environment. And if you think about what that drill ship used to do, it was a drill ship for the oil and gas industry. And so the economics of all of that are very well understood. And so, yes, there's some changes because we're collecting nodules. We're not drilling holes kilometers deep into the seafloor. And so, but but we can get a very firm grip around those sets of economics. And so, you know, as we've announced in our... um, in our publicly filed documents, you know, we can collect and ship these nodules uh, to an onshore processing facility anywhere in the world for a lot less than $100. Now, that's pretty attractive. Uh, and, and it's attractive primarily because the high grade of what's here. So this is made up of nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese. And it's around 32% uh, metal content. And so, and if, if the nickel grade is between 1.3 and 1.4%, but if we put the other metals into nickel equivalents, it's around 3.2% nickel equivalent. And as you know, Matthew, you know, like grade, grade, grade is what determines the profitability of a, of a, resource of this size well and, and so this grade well, is- and scale uh which you've got um yeah. For, yeah. for sure so okay understand that so w- 
you will at some point in the near future, within what, the next 12 months, get to be able to sort of talk and give guidance as to the, the cost of being able to produce these different um, metals, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Well, but we've already given guidance around the cost. I mean, our PEA was um, was signed off by independent experts. And so so we have a pretty firm grip on what those numbers will be. Well, P PAs are plus or minus 30%, right, generally. And sure. given the unconventional yeah, yeah. nature of what, you, what you're proposing, I, again, ex mm. experts... In, an, in a relatively new industry is, you know, forgive me if I don't necessarily leap to agree with them. I want, I want, I want a little bit more work. I want some pilot work uh, activity done. I want yeah. some bit more things happening at scale, right? So it, it's, all, it's all good and it takes time. It's a big project. It's a big idea, big thesis, um, and potentially yeah. very, very meaningful to, um, you know, all of these sectors which it, it will affect. Um, but coming back to the sort of the, the, who owns what, okay? You've got a property. It's a 1,000 kilometers offshore. You've got a state that has sponsored you, right? It's, it's released you to be able to do what you need to be able to do for, for now. Um, where do the economics go, assuming all is, all is well with this? Obviously, your company gets some, but normally governments step in and want a little piece of this. And So how does that all work? Mm, yeah, so, so we have, let's, let's use the first block that we're developing, Nori D. Um, we are sponsored, so we hold the license directly and through a subsidiary of ours. And we then have a sponsorship agreement with our sponsoring state, in this case, Nauru. And so we will pay a royalty to the Nauru government, and that royalty will be very meaningful. I mean, it, it could impact their GDP by up to 50%. We will then pay a larger royalty to the International Seabed Authority. And UNCLOS was very clear on what should happen to those royalties, and, and they should be they should cover the cost of the regulatory um, or the regulator, but the excess should be distributed to the developing countries of the world. And so obviously where we locate our facilities will have an impact on taxes as well. And so, uh, and, and one of the great uh, flexibilities that this resource affords is that we can locate our processing facilities wherever it makes sense, near a deep water port, uh, near a supply of uh, cheap uh, renewable power, uh, in a stable fiscal regime, and so on and so on. And so, so but the royalties will be attractive. Um, and, and that's a good thing because this is a, a, an asset that's deemed the common heritage of humankind because it sits in international waters. So it's owned by everyone. And so the fact that there can be such significant benefit sharing you know, is an important part of this this uh, process, and of course, we're we're very proud of our sponsoring partners, the Nauru, uh, the Kingdom of Tonga, and Kiribati, and you know, they are the nations that have had the least impact on climate change. Yet they're in the front row when it comes to being impacted by climate change through rising sea levels. So the fact that this provides those populations, those communities with not only jobs, uh, training, but royalties and some ability to, to participate in the economics, I, I think is a, a shining example. Okay, so, you, so, so okay, it, that, that, that's your ESG 
talk, right? So you, you, you're going to do good and you're, I guess, obliged to do good, but you want to do good um, with the distributing the the proceeds or the the, the, the money that mm-hmm. this project potentially makes. I, I kind of got asked that question about well, how, how cute do you need to be? You're on you're on the Nasdaq. You're you know you're, you're a U.S. company now uh, in, in in many many ways. Do you have to follow through with the that kind of ESG talk in terms of the way that you structure and you distribute capital here? I mean, are we going to see um, you know the the uh, the IP being offshored, pardon the pun, uh, are we going to see you get cute with the way that you manage the, the business? Or do you have this ethical um, thought running through the backbone of the of the company and you are going to pay, be a good citizen, pay taxes where they are due, um, as well as choosing to distribute to, you know, whoever you want else you want to distribute to? Yes, to the last one. And there are several mega trends at the moment, right? One of them is, um, you know, the transition away from fossil fuels that's generating all this demand. The other is the decoupling in East and West, which means that everyone's trying to build their own safe, secure supply chains. But the third is the the money that is flowing with an ESG bracket. Uh, And so we want to tap into that. And so, you know, in fact, to that point, we'll be publishing our first impact report before the end of the year. You know, a, a pretty ambitious goal for a company at our stage of development, because we want to put it all out there. You know, we're very proud of, of the ESG side of this business. In fact, it's what attracted me to it in the first instance. And so, you know, so, so yes, yes, and yes is the answer there, Matthew. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.